Okay, two shepherds. Uh, this is the title that you'll find in your Bibles. Uh, a bit lower down in the verses, um, part 14 of the Court of Faith. Last week we did a little talky bit. I uh, hope it was helpful. Um, and this week we go back to me um, shouting at you. No, not really. Uh, me telling you uh, about the word uh, so you can uh, see what God is saying to us and what he wants us to know. Uh, we're in Zechariah 11 now. Um, and this is uh, somewhat, I will give you a warning, somewhat of some stuff we've already said, maybe in previous few chapters, but it or, or still just as important uh, as we look at this. So let's go through the verses. Zechariah 11 uh, is what we're reading today. Let's go through the first three verses. These are still within, um, where it looks like if you look back at Zechariah 10, it, this is a continuation almost as you look at these verses. It feels like a continuation. But let's read it. One to three. Open your doors, Lebanon, so that the so that fire may devour your cedars. Uh, well, you juniper, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Well, oaks of Bashan, the dense forest, has been cut down. Listen to the wall of the shepherds. Their riches, uh, rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. So, of course, this is still poetry. You'll see in your Bible uh, that it is uh, text that way, it's written that way, or framed that way, in that it's a poetry uh, context, a poetry setting, um, and all sorts of things to basically describe just in these first three verses uh, the pride and evil in the hearts of the people. Uh, the cedars and the tall trees in Scripture represent human pride, uh, sinful independence of God, and these were used to depict uh, proud and cruel leaders. Uh, so very much imagery again, as we get with Zechariah, uh, but very much uh, a real thing that happens even today. Uh, God is pointing to a time when his people will once again revert to pride, idolatry and corruption. Uh, isn't it true that that's just always the case? We always fall back into these things. Thankfully, through Jesus, uh, we can come back to him, ask for forgiveness, and it will be done. We are forgiven. So to avoid this and help the people of God, Zechariah is appointed a shepherd over Israel to feed and care for them. Uh, verse 4 says, this is what the Lord my God says, shepherd the flock uh, marked for slaughter. There's all sorts of stuff wrapped up in this one verse about whether did God choose people beforehand to be slaughtered, to go to hell, or did he, and did he choose certain ones to be saved? Uh, we're telling you now, uh, I do not believe that God goes, you are saved, you are not, you are saved. What I do believe is that he knows who's saved and he knows who's not. So there's still chance because if you read the Bible very clearly, there's always ifs in the New Testament asking people to believe. And it says, if you believe, if you choose to believe in Jesus Christ, he will fulfill the promise that he will save you and it will be done. Grace still, just in this one verse, he still sends Zechariah to be the shepherd of a flock that is marked for slaughter. And the people that, of course, he's talking about, they will not respond to this shepherd, uh, Zechariah, so God has marked them for this slaughter. So he already knows, he already, they're already in this state of rebellion. Uh, they've already fallen back into corrupt ways. Um, and it's not an arbitrary decision by God, which I was kind of trying to explain. It's not an arbitrary decision. This is knowledge he has about them. He knows that they are rebelling against him. He offers them grace, blessings, prosperity, 
uh, under the shepherding of Zechariah. We saw that in the chapter in chapter 10. We saw that he was offering uh, immense prosperity, immense blessing for his people if they came to him. But instead, his people go back to looking for others. Verse 5 says, Their buyers slaughter them and go and punish those who sell them, say, Praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. They decided to be led by corrupt spiritual leaders. They actually decided... They're not mistaken. They're not like, oh, that's too late. They, they got some leaders and went, oh, we didn't realize they were false leaders. They knew they were false leaders because they're feeding uh, within those people that chose them a, a sinfulness, a brokenness already. And so they get people they, who are le leaders over them to be the same people because they also want to be in that state. They choose to turn away from God. And so they choose leaders to align with their sinful state. Probably a general principle we would have today in this world that we would probably if we're still broken we haven't found jesus the likelihood leaders we're going to choose are people that are like us uh, and validate our brokenness and say no it's okay to be sinful it's okay to do those things but as a result corruption is rife among god's people there's bribery in the law courts again and families being reduced to slaves due to their poverty their debt they owe they're being turned into slaves to pay back their debts by these people. And so openly evil were the leaders that we see in this verse. They would mock the Lord. This is this verse here. Praise the Lord, I am rich. This is a mocking of God. And so these false shepherds are so openly evil that they mock the Lord. They're not actually praising him as such. They're mocking that the flock had abandoned by saying, praise Lord, for I am rich. And then he goes on, verse 6. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land. I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So to the people that had rejected God, God says he would show no mercy to those who showed no mercy to others. Very simply, that's what this verse says. If you do not show mercy and love, as I've shown you mercy and love, I will not show you mercy and love. And we know that the greatest two laws, the greatest two things that we should do as Christians, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. This is it again. They're not doing that. And so what happens is, of course, God says, you're not, first of all, loving me, and you're also not loving your families, your neighbors, and so I'm not going to do that either, because I ask you to do that as a minimum. That is the minimum he asks from them. And they don't do that, so he says, I'm not going to do that for you. And so he goes on in verse 7. So I shepherded the flock, Mark the slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. And I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. Zacharias' role is not to go and shepherd the corrupt leaders. He's not there to try and change them. He's not there to try and change their uh, the path that they're on they are so gone that i suppose in some ways we would look at this that god would say i've handed you over to your own evil so against god are they that they're not going to be redeemable in that sense so zachariah is here for the people first those under the corrupt leaders and especially the oppressed zachariah sent there to feed the people god's word and he does this through grace loving kindness 
And we see that in the forms of two staffs, favour and the other union. Verse 8, it says, In one month I got rid of the three shepherds. The flock detested me and I grew weary of them. Verse 9, 2, And said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Dan, favour, again. Can you switch the screen off for me? I can just about hear it, and I've turned out too loud. Thank you. <laughs> I always think someone's talking in, in the other room somewhere, and it just, just really off-putting. Okay. Verse 8 and 9, it said, I will be, not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish, that those who are left eat one another's flesh. Quite gruesome. Uh, is this uh, that we see and we find that even uh, Zechariah was able to depose the free shepherds um, after feeding the people with God's word the people would actually turn on him and this is incredible because uh, he actually removed the, the thing that was sending them off course that was sending them off to another path and they hated him for it they absolutely detested him for doing that. Now, I need to say that the three shepherds, no one actually knows who they are. There's, there's this reference to what is two shepherds, and that's a very clear false shepherd and the good shepherd, the real shepherd, Zechariah in this case, certainly. But no one actually knows for sure who the three shepherds are. And so when that happens, we don't need to know who the three shepherds are. It's really a, a, a the, the point is not who they are, how it refers to maybe Revelation, it's three, so is it the evil of three? Is it the false? Is it the antichrist? Because he comes as evil looking like God in three people. Uh, but that's not really our concern. What we're concerned with is what the point of why he said it. The people turned on him as he removed these people, but they became obstinate, hardened, rejecting the rule of their shepherd in favor of the opposition, sorry, the oppression of their leaders. And because they rejected him, uh, the shepherd in turn rejects the flock and leaves them to fend for themselves. It's really interesting to note, you might, might want to wonder why that particular last part, which is quite gruesome, uh, let those who are left eat one another's flesh. This actually happened uh, in, Rome, in Jerusalem in AD 70 uh, at the Roman siege. Uh, they were, uh, I suppose, cannibalistic, um, but they were eating flesh. It actually literally happened. Um, and it's a reference to that in some ways, but also back to this thing that they're, they're kind of God said to through Zechariah, leave them to their devices. If they want to choose that way, it's going to go really bad. It's not going to be just bad if I let them go. If I don't do what I've told them to do, if I, if I don't protect them anymore, it's going to get really bad. It's going to spiral. It's going to get incredibly bad. Verse 10 and 11, then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. Verse 11, it was revoked on that day. And so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. The good shepherd here in Zechariah had announced that to, them, to them God's message of love and grace, but they then purposefully put themselves outside of his covenant by rejecting that message. So God responds to their rejection, hands them over to it by rejecting them. There's a little glimmer of hope, though, as it says in these verses. The oppressed, the few that are left, they know it was the Lord. 
They know this word is from God. And so the oppressed know that it is the Lord's word. This small flock described as the poorest and most afflicted among the people remained faithful to the good shepherd. And this is an amazing sense of grace uh, that even as we find actually in many countries where there is a lot of oppression, especially in poverty, especially where people are in poverty, we find a similar thing. The people who are under much oppression in poverty tend to be able to see God more clearly. Now, that might be uh, because of poverty, but we've seen rich people do the same. We've seen wealthy people turn to the Lord. We've seen wealthy... I, I've seen stories of people who are, um, we might call dis disgustingly wealthy, but actually they still turn to the Lord and they, what they do with their money is then serve the kingdom with it. There's not many of them, but they do do it. It does happen. But in this sense, we get that this is still happening today. We get a sense that because they have nothing, there's only God. They can see God now. They can see he is Lord, that he can save them entirely. Verse 12, it goes on. And 13, I told him, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me, pay me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Uh, you may know what this is a reference to. Anyone know what 30 pieces of silver means in the New Testament? Judas, Judas Iscariot, yeah, Judas, the, the traitor. This was, in fact, the price of a slave. Uh, it was still a large amount of money as well. And even so, it was a show of contempt towards Zechariah. It, it said many more things than just the money itself uh, and his place as the good shepherd. And so in the eyes and the hearts of the people, Zechariah is considered nothing more than a slave. He's completely worthless in their eyes. And so we do see this used by Matthew. He quotes it as well. Uh, when Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and then that money was used by the chief priest to buy the potter's field as a burial ground uh, for foreigners. And they valued Christ as much as they valued contaminated burial ground for despised Gentiles. And so this potter's house, this potter's field is a reference. Matthew uses that uh, to help us understand what the Old Testament was always saying was going to happen in the New Testament. Um, and we see that here. Verse 14 uh, then says, then I broke my second staff called union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. Verse 15, then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd. Disunity within Israel will be the result of the rejection of the good shepherd. They became disunified. They hated each other. They would treat each other terribly uh, to the point, as I said, they would put them in slavery. Those who would not hear the good shepherd would be the prey of the foolish shepherds. And so it goes on, 1617, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword struck his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blind. Zechariah in verse 16, play acts a false shepherd. And he says, this is what basically the false shepherd says. 
not care for the lost, I won't seek the young, I won't heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. He uses these extremes of a false, evil, a false evil shepherd to infer what the good shepherd will do. The good shepherd will do the opposite of that entirely. And Zechariah finishes with a promise that God will strike down the strength and intelligence of a worthless shepherd. So this is the uh, arm which is a strength and the eye which is uh, a representation of intelligence. He will strike him down, removing all his power and ability by bringing judgment on them. And so the false teachers will share in God's punishment because of their opposition to Christ, who longs to gather the people like sheep who are lost without a shepherd. And I find it incredibly gracious that God then goes after the false shepherds and not really after those who followed and really put in place the false shepherds. There is punishment for them, of course. He says, I will not protect you anymore. But in God's grace, he still goes after the false shepherds. And I find that incredibly uh, comforting. That even in our really bad, 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 bad choices, God is still gracious in love and he still wants his people to come to him. He still wants people to come back to him. So, Here's what I want to talk about quickly, uh, hopefully. Uh, don't feed the false shepherds. Um, we've talked somewhat about false shepherds, but I want to talk about this from the other side, actually. And I think it's really easy for us to kind of go, there's a, there's a false leader, there's someone who's speaking against God's word, there's a heretic, or whatever we're going to call it, all the words we throw around. But something that's really just plainly obvious is these people wouldn't be in this position necessarily if there weren't people feeding them, if there weren't people coming under their authority, as it were. And so we can't go without blame ourselves and say, well, it's their fault. It's, 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 what, it's what they've done. Actually, if there's no people following them, they're not a leader. And you can give yourself all the titles you want, by the way. You can call yourself a pastor, you can call yourself a minister, but you're not. If you have no flock, if you have no church, you have no one to lead, you're not a leader. I mean, that, that's effectively what happens. And so I want to talk about this from the other way. Um, that we need to look at how do, how do I not feed into that? If we're not feeding into the full shepherd, then the full shepherd can't grow. The full shepherd can't get power, can't get authority over us, and so kind of control us uh, to their will. Uh, what's clear is that uh, I think there'll always be people who want to mislead and lead astray God's people that will always be the case but it's it's clear that a shepherd can only be a full shepherd if he has a flock to start with we can choose to have false leaders over us that's a reality we need to take responsibility for that but there's a reason why we why people choose false leaders why people choose people to have some element of authority over them as i said at the start this is about what's the craving in our hearts i want someone maybe subconsciously i'm going to give that we may not have fully identified the sin in our heart at this point but maybe i want a leader that lets me sin that is okay with me not being so christ-like Maybe in my hearts of hearts because our flesh wants to always tell us to not follow Christ. Wouldn't it be better if I had a leader that just kind of was okay 
with my sin. It was because they did it too, because they secretly love it too. That would be an easy way out, wouldn't it? The secret cravings of our flesh, its thoughts, desires that we don't want to give up. And so in effect, sinful desires can be lived through false shepherds who also live in the cravings of their own sinful desires. And this creates this relationship where the followers feed off the false shepherd and the false shepherd feeds off the followers' sinful desires. And so once we're stuck in that circle, you can see why there is a growing concern among churches where you're getting people who are misleading the flock, not teaching the word, not teaching the absolute principles of who Jesus is. And then that grows the church because people come from the world and they don't have to change that much, right? They come in, they go, well, he tells me a story about a funny story about life or, or something that he does. And, and it's okay, go, oh, I did this once, oh, silly me. And then we get some validation coming and it's very slow. It's very, it's almost invisible sometimes. But if we've got the word, then we can test that. We can say, um, this doesn't fit with what the word says. This is not what the word says. It's entirely within our ability as given by the revelation of God's word through the Holy Spirit to not give any power or authority to these wolves or false shepherds. For Zechariah, the people purposefully chose to have shepherds over them who were not of God and made it plainly obvious that they were out for themselves. This is because within God's people, they'd allow their own sinful desires to be manifest, to be validated through false shepherds. In effect, the people's corruption was being lived out through the already corrupted false shepherds. I want to be clear, many in church, generally in the church, have been hurt by those who claim to have their best interests at heart. That we need to acknowledge. People that pose themselves as shepherds when they're in fact false leaders. So I want to make sure I'm being clear that those who have been spiritually abused by church leaders who overstep their authority are victims of an abuse that is no fault of their own. Can I just make a clear line? Because what can happen with this is this will be taken out of context. And it's, it, what it then does, it does it victim blaming. And it says, oh, it's your fault. The, the Zachariah chapter here is very clear that both leader and, and the people following were totally the other way. They were totally indulging openly and in, in an enjoyable way, indulging in sin. So I want to be clear, this is very different from where we have leaders who are very good at speaking, very good at speaking out of both sides of their mouth is the term, where they say something that affirms the Bible and then another term, another way they say something against it. And for many, that's tricky to, to, to spot. That's very difficult because they're very good at speaking. So let me be clear. It's not people who have the right intention to find a biblical teacher, biblical leader, who have followed them on the basis that they really do believe that they have, uh, they're, they're reading, going from God's word, they're teaching from God's word. Those people are victims. Those people being misled. Here, I want to talk about where everyone is helping each other to be sinful. Does this make sense? So I really need to make that clear because we have a lot of this coming out in more recent years of abuse of leaders on the church. And I want to be clear, uh, this is not about victim blaming. 
So what I'm talking about is this. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time will come when people will put up with sound doctrine. Will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Man, by his natural instinct, does not want God's revelation. The Bible says so. Not accidentally, on purpose. He doesn't want, he and she doesn't want God's revelation. They would rather hear what they want to hear. We would rather hear what we want to hear sometimes, right? We want some of our own things validated, right? Because it's an easy life. Sin is called sin because it's really tempting. It's enjoyable. Let's not get this wrong. It's tempting. Some of my things I want and say, I'm right. God, validate this. I'm going to use your word to validate what I think. It's a wrong way of teaching entirely. If I start with a premise and say, here is my thoughts on this, and I'm going to take from the Bible in order to back it up, that's bad, terrible teaching. Don't listen to that. When it starts with a topic or a subject matter, and then it's using verses to back up an opinion, it's wrong. And so there is a way to find out if we're under people who are not leading us well. Left to our own devices, I think we would do what feeds the insatiable desires of the flesh. So without allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and resisting the full, uh, sorry, and the, resisting the full word of God, we would find a place that spoke to our uttermost self-righteousness and self-delusional state. We would, because guess what? We're sinful and we love being right, don't we? How often have you thought, because I can think in more recent times, and I can think, how many times have you thought when something you said, don't do that because this will happen, and in your head, because you're really trying to not say it, I told you so. Doesn't that, something that feels good, right? Yeah, that, that's the sin, trying to do some, make you feel good. I, I told them. But as a gracious brother and sister, come on. Grace and love is not bringing those things up. Grace and love is helping that person when that happens. Coming around them, praying for them, helping them. I'm not saying I told you so. So we would find this place, I think, and we do often, where it speaks to our desires and not what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, verse 3, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, like the rest we were by nature, deserving of wrath in this state we are likely to look for leaders who speak into and validate our sinful state and therefore finding these false shepherds for Zachariah the people hated Zachariah for removing the free shepherds imagine not having your so-called shepherd your so-called leader validating your passions and desires of the flesh and normalizing them so this is where they are they're in a state where they've got four shepherds who are saying this is okay we're all benefiting from oppressing people and then for someone to come along and go it's wrong it's not being godly you're not doing what god told you to do and those riches have to go 
that power has to be removed. What will that do to the sinful person who's so embedded in their sin? That will strike, as the Bible says, double-edged sword. It will, it will hurt. And so what do they do? No surprise here, they hated him. They hated him. This would expose them. And what happens when sin is exposed? It reminds us of death of the flesh is painful. That God deals with our sin decisively. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to know about that. So they reject him and say, no, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to know about this. There are people in this world we, I've spoken to who don't want to hear about heaven and hell. I mean, they might actually want to hear about heaven, and it's a version of their own heaven, by the way, but they don't want to hear about hell. I just don't believe it. I say this time and time again. It doesn't matter what you believe. It exists. Just because in your brain you're thinking it doesn't exist, when you die, it's going to happen if you don't believe in Jesus. It doesn't change anything. The facts are the facts. So when we react, we either submit to the truth of God's word and let it correct us, or we dig in further to our fleshly passions and desires. Digging in further only allowed evil to pro proliferate further among God's people in Zechariah's time. The only people seemingly alert to this were the group of oppressed people. All they had, after it was all stripped away, was God's word from Zechariah. That's all they had. What it showed, more importantly, was that it was entirely possible for everyone else, the oppressors also, to voluntarily stop allowing the false shepherds to lead them. They could have turned at any moment and said, Lord, we've done terrible, disgusting things to your people. But no, that wasn't the case. It showed they purposefully chose to allow their desires and passions and greed to control them. And so with God's promise and shepherding through Zechariah, it would have been entirely possible to turn back to God. And for us, we of course have this choice too. The whole world has this choice today. The more we read the word and understand it, the more we know what is truth from fiction. It almost feels, as you read the word, how foreign this place is. As you get more into the word, something is more and more wrong with this place every day, with this world. It feels so distant. The more you read God's word, the more this, is, this isn't right. The place I live in, in my physical, is, doesn't, is not compatible with my spiritual. The more we allow the word to change us to focus on God and not on ourselves, the more we can discern the righteous teaching of God's word. And when we allow that change in us and joyfully embrace the word, we understand two things. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These are not wishy-washy things. These are very particular things that we are to do as Christians. 
These are difficult things to do as Christians. None of them are easy and no one should say they are. Which is why it's a choice. Do you believe in Jesus or not? And if you do believe in him, you must believe the one who is in the Bible, not the one I've made up in my head. Not what my opinion says is Jesus, but what the word says is Jesus. In our Ephesians verse, it speaks of what Christ has done for us. So that, as it says in Galatians, we who belong to him can now do something about these passions and desires. It's a really important point. This is a, a quite a, a useful thing to know. This particular verse, this particular section in Galatians also. Everything is about God and his grace, and he has made it possible for us to become Christian, to become believers in Jesus. Here is one particular point. This is our choice. This is the one we choose. So if we belong to Christ Jesus, we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. All the work of salvation over here is all God. It's his authority, it's his grace, it's his love, it's everything. There is one bit which says we must every day crucify these things. If we're in Christ, then those things are no longer compatible with living to God. So every day, not once, not one off when you become a Christian, every single day we choose crucify that. I want that gone. I don't want to do that anymore. And it may come back. And you know what? We are so easily self-deceived. And the reason why I say that is because there are certain things I do and I go, right, yeah, God, and I focus on it for a while, a prayer, and I think, Lord, just, I don't want to do that. It's not honoring you. And then it kind of goes away. And then I get on with other stuff. And then suddenly, because I think, I say it's done. Bad day. Not enough sleep. Whatever you want to call it. Bang, comes back. That's because I think, if I've done it once, God says, right, I'm going to go through it and it's done. It's always there. It's a snare, as the Bible says, waiting to trap us. And so as we learn to be more Christ-like, we're learning where the traps are. We're learning where the snares are. You might want to think of it as a minefield, that the mines are now revealed. We're no longer underground. You don't have to tiptoe. You know they're there. But then we do this where we go, I've dealt with that. But then we step back and we're trapped. We belong we who belong to him are being directed and empowered by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one we trust to help us through crucifying these fleshly desires and passions. Let's keep going back through prayer. Keep going back through the power of the Holy Spirit. Say, Lord, that's not honouring you. It doesn't glorify you. It's not, this is not about guilt. This is about living to Christ. It's not about just saying sorry. That's not the thing. But saying, Lord, forgive me, I want to be more Christ-like. I want to be honouring what you've done through your son. So God has a place for our flesh with all its passions and desires. He wants us to nail it to his cross so that it may be under control and under the sentence of death. Luther says this, the problem of our flesh will not be finally dealt with until we are resurrected. Until then, we are to constantly nail it to the cross 
so that it hangs there, alive yet powerless over us. To resist the flesh is to nail it to the cross. Although the flesh is still alive, it cannot very well act upon its desires because it is bound and nailed to the cross. You see that sense of it's not completely gone. It's not completely gone. It's still there because we're still living in these broken bodies and these broken minds and a broken heart. But now it's powerless. Now I nail it to the cross and say, Lord, you died for that. You died so I could, I could live. I'm going to do it again today. That's going to go. I'm not going to re-crucify Jesus, but I'm going to, I'm going to crucify these desires again today. I'm going to keep being, trying to be more like you through your holy power. So as believers, we've said to Jesus that every day as a believer, we want our fleshly passions and desires to have been revealed to us and then have them crucified. If that's a conscious decision we've made, then there's no excuse when we don't test shepherds and leaders against the word of God. It should feel foreign when someone, a leader, promotes what is fleshly, what is sinful. It should go, well, hold on a second. That, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't, doesn't feel right in my head because I know certain things about the Bible about this. Something is not sitting right with me. Because as we're moving away from this fleshly desire, it feels more and more foreign. It feels more and more not right. So that there's kind of no excuse for us then. If we're getting into the word, getting into the spirit, hear what he's saying through his word, then I no longer have to put up with false leaders. So no, that's just wrong. I don't want you to help me to sin more. I want you to teach me how to be more Christ-like. Not because of the person speaking, but because of what the Bible says. What we know, strangely, is not even the fault of these false shepherds in Zechariah. Because we know they're everywhere. That's why he focuses on the people. He focuses on shepherding them. On making sure they know what the word says. Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are for ferocious wolves. We should know this. It is on the ones, us, who proclaim to have embraced the true Jesus of the Bible to recognize when it is a wolf that is trying to lead us astray. It is simply not enough to say, I'm going to indulge in it and then blame them at the end. If I know my Bible, if I know the word, if I know the character of God, something should be, at some point, be revealed. And at that point, do I choose to keep being under their authority, or have I recognized, have I seen something that is heretical? And it has to be quite extreme, by the way, because we, we're all in error. As leaders, we do make errors. Error is different from heresy. Let me say that. We do make errors because we're learning, even as leaders, every leader's learning about the word and go, hold on a minute, what I saw about that is not what actually it, I think it is anymore. But as long as it isn't against the word, as long as it isn't openly trying to justify sin, we're okay, but we're still called to be observant, watchful all the time. So how then... Do we not give power or authority to the full shepherds, the prophets and the leaders? Simply this. Make sure that your life is directed by the powerful word of God. 
before anything else. Let me, I can't say any simply than I say every single week now. Because this is not an opinion that many people would like, even Christians. Read your Bible. Please study it. Please. It's not just down to me. It is on you to be ready for that day when you come to Jesus, to know the Jesus you're standing in front of. To know the God that you're standing in front of, who will judge you, who will judge me. I'm called to know him because he says this word is sufficient. Make sure we're trying to get into the word as often as possible. Because how do we know what their, their fruit looks like, the false shepherd's fruit, unless we know which fruit we're looking for? Jesus uses good fruit. Fruit Analogy in fruit is also good and bad. But how do we know which one's good? How do we know which one's bad? Get into the word. Philippians 1, verse 9 to 11 says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Simply, don't be afraid of gaining knowledge about the Bible. Because here is what I know the false leaders are doing. They're telling you that knowledge of the word is puffing you up, is making you arrogant. They even go so far as to make up this stupid thing that says you are worshipping the Bible and not Jesus. The only time when knowledge is wrong is when we use it to feel proud about ourselves. And in fact, the word is not designed to do that. The word should make us feel tiny and small. And yet at the same time, feel like we want to worship God for what he has done. It's a strange thing going on there. So let's not be afraid of depth of insight. Do not be afraid to study the Bible. Because I'm telling you now, these false shepherds do not want you to study the Bible. They don't want you to know the word. You're perfect prey if you don't have the word as your protector. Just hear it from me. I've got your best interests at heart. Don't ever challenge what I say. Don't ever read the Bible. Don't ever challenge the verses that I use. And you'll be fine, I promise. Come on. We're losing this, aren't we, in this world? People are going to churches and they're letting leaders who are not true leaders have authority over them to the point where they will move the Bible aside and have their leader as their Bible. It's not right, church. It's dangerous and it's happening around us. So we need to be aware that we don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I listen to other leaders. I Pick which ones are right. I know which ones are sort of okay. Issues I don't agree with, but on other things I do. There's others that are completely heretical, and I stay away from them entirely. Not because of my opinion in the best way I can, but because I go, but that's not what it says in the Bible. 
So it is down to us. The only way is to study the word. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict us and so be blameless on the day we face our Lord and Saviour. Let's pray and then we'll worship together.